Immediately following the first attack, I implemented our government's emergency response plan. President Barack Obama has declared swine flu a national emergency. Now, not over the next 68 days, but right now. The bottom line is this. We're in a national emergency. We need to act like we're in a national emergency. Nick, how common would you wager a national emergency is? A national emergency sounds like a very rare thing. Like, it's it's reserved for emergencies. It's like, break this glass, but only if there is an emergency. Currently, in December 2021, when we are recording this, we have 40 active national emergencies. 40? Yeah. And some of these emergencies have been active for decades. The oldest is from 1979 and started after the Iran hostage crisis. The American embassy in Tehran is in the hands of Muslim students tonight. Spurred on by an anti-American speech by the Ayatollah Khomeini, they stormed the embassy from the Marine Guard. I mean, I assume we're not just talking about something that happened that seemed like an emergency at the time. This is an official codified term, right? Yeah, it's more than someone just yelling, it's an emergency! Actually, it's not too different from that, but it is that the president is the one yelling it. To unleash the full power of the federal government in this effort today, I am officially declaring a national emergency. And in doing so, invoking their, quote, emergency powers. It is the political equivalent of, as you said, breaking the glass or like pushing the big red button. Have there always been so many emergencies going on at the same time? Okay, so you said that a national emergency sounds like it should be a rare thing, right? Yeah. And it used to be. In the last century, the president's use of emergency powers went from a rarity to a tool that presidents use dozens of times while in office. And they often extend into the next administration and the one after that. Our last four presidents have had 53 national emergencies between them. Clinton had 17. George W. Bush had 13. Obama had 12. And Trump had 11. But before we talk about how we ended up with dozens of simultaneous national emergencies, some decades old, we should talk about what emergency powers are and why they exist in the first place. I'm Hannah McCarthy. I'm Nick Capodice. And this is Civics 101. Today we are talking about the power that a president gets during a national emergency and how Congress has tried to put checks on that power. So what are emergency powers? I'm going to leave that up to Kim Lane Shepley, the author of Law in a Time of Emergency, which is, I really like that title. Virginia Prescott, the former host of Civics 101, spoke to her back in 2017. Emergency powers are used to override laws that would otherwise normally have effect. And and actually, it's also used to override some constitutional provisions that would otherwise have effect. Emergency powers are designed for moments when plans need to change and fast. And the president decides that they can't wait for the slow bureaucracy of Congress to act. For example, you know, presidents all the time declare national disasters or emergencies if there are hurricanes, floods, giant snowstorms, you know, various kinds of weather-related emergencies. Earthquakes would be another example. Um, And when the president declares emergency powers, what the president can usually do is to take money that's been allocated for other purposes and redirect it to deal with the crisis that the country's facing at the moment. So an emergency allows the president to override certain laws and take money Congress had designated to one thing 
and use it somewhere else. Yes. Constitution 101 says that Congress must appropriate funds for specific uses. And so here you've got a case where the president sort of overrides that and takes money Congress has put aside for one purpose and uses it for another purpose. Is there any law that defines what actually counts as an emergency? There is no strict definition of a quote-unquote emergency in our Constitution, but the understanding of how that word can be used has evolved over time. All a president needs to do is issue a proclamation and file it with a federal register announcing a state of emergency because of a specific reason, a hurricane, an attack of some kind, a pandemic. It sounds like emergency powers are a way for a president to push their agenda without having to work with Congress. Has this always been sort of a tried-and-true workaround for navigating the wheels of Congress? Well, it used to be the case, if you go back far enough in American history, presidents would just declare emergencies on their own. Now, presidents weren't declaring emergencies with any regularity until the 1930s. It was right after the stock market crashed. It was the beginning of the Great Depression. And what happens is newly elected President Franklin Delano Roosevelt declares a federal bank holiday. He closes the country's banks for four days. And this was the first step in the government's reconstruction of our financial and economic fabric. Now, Roosevelt justified this move under the Trading with Enemies Act of 1917, which gave the president the power to restrict trade with enemies during wartime. This is 1933. Yeah. We weren't at war in 1933. No. But Roosevelt found a way to retroactively justify this act, because at the time, there were over 100 newly elected Democrats in Congress who also wanted to make radical changes to the banking system. Roosevelt asked Congress to pass a joint resolution that became the Emergency Banking Act, which not only gave the president the power to restrict trade in a national emergency, but also created 12 new Federal Reserve banks that could issue additional currency and stabilize the nation's economy. What it sounds like is that Roosevelt used an emergency situation as an opportunity to give the president more power to act in future emergency situations. Yeah, and he also used it to drastically change the banking structure in the United States. And for the next two decades, the list of things presidents justified doing in certain situations, like wartime or an emergency, kept growing and growing. Like President Truman's decision to send troops to South Korea without congressional authorization during the Cold War. And President Johnson's escalation of America's participation in the Vietnam War. To protect our men who are in Vietnam. And then President Nixon came along. And to guarantee the continued success of our withdrawal and Vietnamization programs, I have concluded that the time has come for action. During the Vietnam War, Nixon ordered secret bombings in Cambodia without alerting Congress. And Congress was not pleased. I would rather be a one-term president and do what I believe was right and to be a two-term president at the cost of seeing America become a second-rate power. And don't forget, there was something else that put Congress and Nixon at odds. Watergate. The White House called it a third-rate burglary. But it escalated into the worst political scandal in American history. 
1972, someone broke into the Democratic Party headquarters at the Watergate Hotel, stole documents, and bugged a phone. Nixon hampered the federal investigation into the break-in, at one point ordering his attorney general to fire the special prosecutor Archibald Cox, the very man who was investigating Nixon. And half an hour after the special Watergate prosecutor had been fired, agents of the FBI, acting at the direction of the White House, sealed off the offices of the special prosecutor, the offices of the attorney general, and the offices of the deputy attorney general. That's a stunning development. Here's Kim Lane Shepley again. Congress got a little bit nervous about exactly what presidents can do, especially when investigations are closing in on them. And the president seems to have no limits on the way the president can, shall we say, hold off those kinds of investigations. Man, I think of this as kind of like the political equivalent of a snowball fight. It's all fun and games until that one kid starts packing his snowballs with rocks. <laughs> Congress passed a number of reforms throughout the 1970s to rein in the executive branch, starting with the War Powers Act of 1973, which limited the president's ability to take military action without congressional approval. It was vetoed by Nixon. That veto was overturned. And during this period, a Senate inquiry found that there were more than 450 statutes that the executive branch could use when a president declares a state of emergency. Congress developed a series of laws that actually regulate presidential emergency powers. The result? Two acts that drew boundaries around presidential powers. The National Emergencies Act of 1976 and the International Emergency Economic Powers Act of 1977. We'll talk about them right after this. Before the break, a quick shout out. All of us who work at Civics 101 write a bi-weekly newsletter called Extra Credit. It's full of fun things, trivia, GIFs. GIFs? Do you say GIFs or GIFs? I mean, I say GIFs because it's graphic, but I know that the creator supposedly says GIF. And, yeah. Anyways, you can subscribe at our website, civics101podcast.org. And while you're there, and if you're able, please consider supporting our podcast. It's free to you, but it's not free to make. And unfortunately, Nick and I need money to live. Annie, you said there were two acts that gave Congress more checks on presidential power. How did they do that? Let's talk about the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, or the IEEPA, first, because it defines a type of national emergency called economic sanctions. I am formally announcing my intention to cut off all trade and investment with Iran. Which make up 65 of the 71 national emergencies that have been declared since 1976. Here's Kim Lane Shepley, the author of Law in a Time of Emergency. And under that act, the president can designate certain individuals and organizations for sanctions, that they can't receive certain kinds of materials or funds from the United States, for example. And if there is an actual attack, the president can confiscate property connected with a country, group, or person that aided in the attack. How does that actually work? Okay, Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, explains this process pretty well. So what happened is, in 2019, President Trump increased sanctions against Venezuela. So basically, one way to summarize this to a business, for example, is do you want to do business in Venezuela or do you want to do business with the United States? The first national emergency declared under that law was that one from 1979 that we mentioned earlier. Jimmy Carter imposed economic sanctions on Iran after diplomats at the embassy were taken hostage. 
Those sanctions were lifted in 1981 as part of an agreement to release the hostages. But Reagan instated new sanctions in 1984 during the Iraq-Iran War. And we have had some form of sanctions against Iran pretty much ever since. Okay, the IEEPA defined economic sanctions on foreign enemies. But what about the other types of emergencies that wouldn't benefit from imposing sanctions on another country, like hurricanes, floods, snowstorms, or pandemics? This is where the National Emergencies Act comes in. One major thing this act did was to establish rules for what the president can and cannot do when they declare a national emergency. Remember how I said there were more than 400 statutes that the president could use in an emergency in the 70s? Yeah. Now that number is 136. Wow. 13 of those require congressional approval, but the president can carry out 123 without getting permission from Congress. So of those that remain, what kind of powers are we talking about? Yes, under certain laws, the president actually has the power, for example, to call out the National Guard to deal with emergencies and to deploy even some military forces. The executive branch can suspend regulation on things like weapons acquisition and testing and handling, including suspending the prohibition on testing weapons on humans. Things like curfews or preventive detention. We actually saw this with the outbreak of these various kind of diseases that come into the U.S. with U.S. carriers, and then those people are quarantined for a while. That's a different kind of emergency power where suddenly somebody's civil liberties are suspended and they have to spend time in a hospital for a while. And in Japan, the numbers of confirmed cases continue to rise on that quarantine cruise ship near Tokyo. This is the site of the largest outbreak outside of mainland China, and it's caused that ship to be under quarantine for weeks. The president can lift certain restrictions on disposal of medical waste in the ocean. They can overturn some legal protections for farmlands if those lands need to be used for defensive purposes. And here's one that stuck out to me. The Secretary of Defense can postpone annual assessments of harassment, violence, and discrimination on the basis of sex, gender, race, or ethnicity if it is not practicable during a time of war or national emergency. That is, it's, it's just so shocking to me because it feels like during an emergency we can throw out a lot of the ways we normally do things. Because there's an emergency. But I never knew it could be used to justify denying basic civil rights protections. And just the fact that they thought to include that, right? I mean, yeah, just I, in case. I, I do think that what's very telling is what is in here and what is not. Every one of these statutes involves political decision making. And this one strikes me as something that does not obviously contribute to some sort of defense strategy, other than it means focusing less on workplace conditions of your employees. Whereas the other ones, at least to me, have a clearer function. Even suspending weapons testing on humans, as nightmarish as that seems, has a clear, if horrifying, defensive strategy. So all of those things are weirdly legal under states of emergency. Because what Congress has done is to provide this whole catalog of alternative legalities, so to speak, alternative legal powers that the president can invoke as long as he first says the magic words, I declare a state of emergency. Did the National Emergencies Act limit how long a national emergency lasts? There are limits. The president has at most 12 months 
to have a state of emergency before it has to be renewed. These restrictions, by the way, also apply to economic sanctions under the IEEPA. But it turns out to be extremely easy to renew it, and you can renew these states of emergency indefinitely. After the terrorist attacks on 9-11, President Bush declared a national emergency, quote, by reason of certain terrorist attacks, so that he could increase the power of our military by reapportioning money towards defense spending and changing people's military contracts. To sometimes extend their terms of duty, to sometimes refuse to allow them to retire or leave at the end of their terms if they're needed. In other words, it was a set of powers that had to do with his role as commander-in-chief. So that was declared right after 9-11. And every year since that time, the president, whoever the president is, signs the continuation of that declaration of emergency. In the 20 years since September 11th, Bush, Obama, Trump and Biden have all extended this national emergency, which, again, allows the president and his secretary of defense to extend someone's military commitment or call them out of retirement. These are time limited, but the time limits are, shall we say, not terribly binding. How does Congress end a national emergency other than just hoping it's going to expire? The National Emergencies Act originally allowed Congress to end a national emergency through a concurrent resolution, which is when the Senate and the House pass identical resolutions that cannot be vetoed by the president. However, the Supreme Court ruled that this is unconstitutional in 1985, and the act was changed so that Congress needs a joint resolution to end a national emergency, which can be vetoed by the president. And I'm going to assume a president is pretty likely to veto an act that would limit their power. Yes, which means that in order for Congress to actually end a national emergency, both houses will likely need a super majority, that's two thirds of the vote, to overturn the veto. So it looks like Congress has kind of reined the president in, which, you know, not a bad thing if you've got an out-of-control president. The problem is the reining in is not very serious. The president, whenever he thinks it's justified, can declare a state of emergency and then use powers that Congress has scattered throughout the laws to address the crisis. A recent example of this was Trump's declaration of a national emergency at the U.S.'s southern border in 2019. This morning, the president plans to announce an end round around Congress, spending billions more on his border wall than Congress has approved. Trump wanted Congress to allocate money toward building a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. The fight between Trump and Congress over this funding led to a 35-day government shutdown. Finally, Trump declared a national emergency to give himself the power to divert money that Congress had allocated to other places to border wall construction instead. Were the House and Senate able to pass a joint resolution to end the national emergency? Yes, but Trump vetoed it. Hmm. And while the Senate was able to get a supermajority to override the veto, the House did not. In all, 248 lawmakers voted to override, but that was 38 short of the two-thirds majority needed. The emergency declaration along the southern border still faces... The emergency only ended when President Joe Biden came into office, and in the meantime, billions of dollars of federal money was funneled into the construction of the border wall. Over the last 90 years or so, presidents have pushed against the checks placed on their power by Congress. And Congress has tried to push back. 
Emergencies are so routinely declared in the U.S., and they are so routinely used for this kind of messaging purpose where they're designed to say, you know, yes, we're handling things, that we forget that they really are exceptions to normal law. And in some cases, they really are truly extraordinary exceptions to net, to regular law. We shouldn't be comforted by the sheer number of states of emergency that exist at any one time in the United States. Surely, if this is a routine problem, you know, you have some natural disaster and you have to get relief supplies across roads that otherwise would be closed or, you know, something of that kind, there's got to be some way we can handle that short of a generalized suspension of normal law. Because if you had really major states of emergency, which is to say massive civil liberties violation, tanks in the streets, you know, all the kinds of things we associate with rogue government, for example, we wouldn't really have a way to theoretically distinguish it or to actually bring legal resources to bear to check it. What stands out to me from all this, Hannah, is that even after the National Emergencies Act, the use of emergency powers has just gone up. It feels like once Congress has defined what a president is and is not allowed to do when they declare an emergency, those powers have been more readily used. Well, that'll do it for today's episode on emergency powers. We hope you like that we didn't put any sirens in this episode. You know, we should have done it for like a joke, but is there anybody else who hates it more than anything when you're listening to something on the radio in your car and it's a siren? Drives me crazy. Anywho, this episode was written and produced by Christina Phillips. Well done, Christina, with help from me, Nick Capodice, and Hannah McCarthy. Our staff includes Jackie Fulton. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music in this episode by BioUnit, Chris Zabriskie, Blue Dot Sessions, Broke for Free, Kamiku, Little Glass Man, Martin Shellikens, and Bobby Renz. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio.